Again, we're continuing our <clears throat> very brief uh, review of Romans as we uh, get back into Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> it's very obvious that uh, this present text, that many sermons uh, could be preached on it. But again, we're kind of setting the stage for Romans chapter 9. Um, because obviously, if we don't understand Romans 8 and God's plan of salvation to us, we won't understand uh, the fullness of God's salvation in his election and in his calling. And so, again, this isn't a deep dive back into the text. We're really picking out the main themes and bringing them to light. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it's a great passage to reread. Um, it was an encouragement for me to just kind of go back through it uh, and reread the text and look at so much of it uh, that is so edifying to us as believers, as children of God. And so we'll be looking this morning at Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> verses 18 through 39, finishing out the chapter. Hear now the words of the one and only living and true God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he has seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word. Why is Romans 8 so powerful when we read it, when we meditate on it, when we look at it? Is it simply because theologians and pastors have uh, mined the depths of this passage? Is it because Reformed theology is built so heavily upon Romans 8? Is it because we love the words like predestination and justification? We have to keep in mind that despite how heavy this is in doctrine, at the end of the day, it was written to laypersons. It was written to all of you. It's written to the church. If you remember, Paul is writing the letter to Romans because he's about to hopefully go on a mission trip to Spain, and he's reminding both the Jew and the Greek why they have this unity in Christ. This isn't Paul's uh, dissertation. This isn't Paul's postgraduate work, and he's trying to write this to get a degree. Paul is reminding brothers and sisters like you and I to be united in doctrine, to be united in the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. To instill hope into Christians of their union with Christ. A union that cannot be shaken or broken by anything in all creation. And so we're going to look first this morning at the glory of God to be revealed in verses 18 through 25. We find in this passage so much confidence in the Lord amidst suffering. We have the revealing of God's glory as this anticipation, as something that we are hoping will come in due time. Our hope is grounded and founded upon that promise. Hence why Paul writes in verse 18 that the sufferings of this present time 
The sufferings that you endure right now are nothing. They're not worthy comparing to the glory that is about to be revealed. Essentially, this is based upon the last section of Romans, how we look that we are adopted as sons, co-heirs with Christ. If you are a co-heir with Christ, if you receive all the blessings that are in Christ Jesus, then all the sufferings you endure are nothing. Nothing compared to this glory that is to be revealed to the sons of Christ. That receiving this Christ-like inheritance far outweighs any amount of suffering you endure in your entire lifetime. And he makes this point all throughout the scriptures. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, as one who would have known suffering firsthand, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison." Or how about Philippians 3, verses 10 through 11? Paul recognizing his sufferings. He says the reason is that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, suffering is a part of the Christian life. Yet at the same time, the suffering that we endure now pales in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us as sons of the living God. Sons with an inheritance granted the firstborn privileges to us. And so we wait with confidence, with hope, with longing for God's revelation in the full. Now many of you uh, who are in the military or have been in the military uh, know a life of longing. Uh, your spouse is out, whether it's training, whether it's more advanced schooling, deployments, military families know what it's like to be separated from their loved one for a long period of time. When the spouse is awaiting for their husband or their wife to return, there's this anxious longing that they have for them to return, to see their loved one again. Or you, if you've uh, let a son or daughter off to college, know that longing to see them when the semester is up. Or if you travel for your employment, you know that longing to be reunited with your loved one again. It's that anxiousness, that anticipation to see them. In the same way, the creation is longing once again for this peace, for this restoration once more. Romans 5, we're told that Adam, when he sinned, he brought sin and death through sin to all because all have sinned. And since then, the creation hasn't been designed or created or acted as it had originally intended in the garden. 
We know this. Thorns, thistles, weeds choke out the ground. You have to labor. You have to work hard. You get tired. You get stressed. You feel anxiety at work. None of that was part of God's intention. All of creation is longing for restoration. Yet Paul shows that God will even free creation from its bondage as well. He says, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The destiny of creation, the destiny of man are inseparable. They're linked together. When man fell into sin and death, so did creation, nature become corrupted. Things die, things suffer. When man goes up into glory and Christ descends, all of creation, just like man, will be completely restored once more. This is the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are longing for this return. You feel it deep down in your soul as you suffer. You are longing for Christ's return. And we set our hope upon that in anticipation for him to come. For him to come, this glory of God to be fully revealed once more. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells inside of you if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he gives us a little taste of this reality. When we are glorified, all things will be made new. And now, in the present, we still deal with sin. We still deal with death. We still deal with sickness. Even though we won't be totally free from sin's power, as long as we're here in our present bodies, the Lord has still given us complete and total victory over the dominion and bondage of sin. The Holy Spirit himself is transformative in the lives of believers. No longer are we inflicted with the deeds of the flesh. Rather, we pursue the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We endure that. We long for that. We are so much more now sensitive to our own sin. We groan like creation because we know that sin isn't as God intended. We can cry out like David in Psalm 38. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. The light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. Or as Paul says in the previous chapter, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Or again, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, For while we are still in this tent, while we are still in this body, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We know that sin is not 
normal. We know that suffering is not normal. While we remain in the tent of our body, while the Spirit indwells within us, although we are freed from it, we still yet hope to be completely, 100% rid of it. Sin destroys us, but Christ Jesus sets us free from its destruction. How do we have hope then? If, if we have to suffer in this Christian life, how do we have hope? Again, the classic Sunday school answer, Jesus, he's the answer. Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only hope that you have in life and death? It's that I am not my own, but I am body and soul united to Christ Jesus. He alone is my hope that I have to be freed from this bondage. Many of you are familiar with this modern hymn, In Christ Alone. The very first stanza is, In Christ alone, my what? My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Jesus Christ is our hope amidst suffering, amidst persecution. It comes from Christ alone. A suffering that hopes is founded upon what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Why? Because he took upon himself human flesh. He laid aside all that he had rights to and took upon himself man. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, wasn't born into this world as a king should be born, but he was born in a manger, born in a low condition, endured sufferings, yet lived perfectly, obeyed God's law in all perfection, yet suffered because of our sins, bore the wrath of God because of our sins. And because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we are free. We have this hope, this glorious promise of redemption, this glory of God to be revealed. And we have steadfast hope in it. And secondly, we'll look at the glory of God's redemptive plan, verses 26 through 30. Again, this entire passage alone is completely robust in terms of theology and practical living. Most commentators will break down verse 29 in little bits and write several pages on it. So obviously we don't have the time uh, to go through it bit by bit. But it's nonetheless critical and important to us. As Paul previously argues, the Holy Spirit indwells us. He is the seal, the imprint, the sign that we are God's chosen people, that we are in Christ, that we are adopted into God himself. So effectual calling, justification, glorification, all these beautiful terms that we love are nothing if we don't have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit is the catalyst of conversion. When we are weak, when we are suffering, when life weighs us down, the great burden that life has upon us, 
Holy Spirit, as Jesus says, is our comforter, is our advocate. He strengthens us. He's also our security. He doesn't merely aid us in our sufferings, in our weakness, but the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us. When we feel as though our prayers aren't perfect, when we can't pray like a Puritan, when they just sound so dull, the Holy Spirit takes that prayer and lifts it up to God, a pleasing aroma to Him. When we pray on behalf of God's will, So when we align ourselves with God's Spirit, when we conform to the Spirit of Christ, He assists us with our prayers that they align to the will of God. I think one of the most difficult lines in the Lord's Prayer is to pray, Thy will be done. Often, if we're honest with ourselves, we truly don't want God's will to be done in our lives. conflicts with what we think our will should be in our own lives. Yet nothing is more comforting than relying upon God's will. When we align ourselves with God's will, we align ourselves with God's redemption, with his plan. We align ourselves with the maker of heaven and earth. We align ourselves with with a good father who knows everything that we need. How do we know this to be true? How, how, Paul, how is this true? He answers, verse 28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, why would you not Pray according to God's will. God works all things together for his purpose. The scripture assures us that no matter what, he works all things for good. Take Joseph as an example. Joseph's entire life, a brother of 11. At an early age, he was thrown into a pit, left for dead. His brothers found mercy and sold him into slavery instead. He was falsely accused of adultery. He spent time in prison. Yet despite that, he's exalted above all others in Egypt. He's just one step below Pharaoh. And what's his reaction to the sufferings that he endured his entire life? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God, one of the most beautiful words in scripture, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's will is to bring about good for those who love him. Do we not also see this in the life of Jesus as well? The word of God says it pleased the father to crush the son. And the Son was willing to go to the cross on our behalf. Prophet Isaiah in chapter 53.10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The suffering servant, Jesus Christ. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do we not see adoption here? He shall have offspring. He shall have many sons and bring them into glory. Even though the hands of wicked men sought to destroy Jesus, it was still part of God's redemptive plan. Acts 2, 23 through 24, this is what Peter says. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. If God willed the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ for your salvation, will he not also bring about good for his own people? For those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have the Spirit of Christ, of course he will, and he surely does. Brothers and sisters, even though we face all forms of persecution and suffering. We have confidence that our God, our Father, our benevolent God, our loving God is working out all things for our good. Cherish the Father's love that he has for you. And the magnitude of this love that God has shown us is truly expressed in his plan of redemption for his people. The glory of God is displayed in verses 29 through 30. And first we start with God's foreknowledge. Now, a lot of debate has been centered around this word. What does foreknowledge mean? Is it some type of looking down the corridors of time to see if you are good, or is it something else? What does it mean to foreknow someone? To know... In biblical language, it's, it's lost to us quite a bit, but to know in the Bible is to love. To know equals to love. How do you know this? Genesis 4.1 is just an example. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Whenever know is used all throughout the Old Testament, it always has this implication of an intimate relationship between two parties, a husband and a wife. So God's foreknowledge is his love that he has for his people. Even Jesus himself uses the same language in John chapter 10. Jesus himself, God, will say, I know the Father. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus doesn't just merely know who the Father is. Jesus Christ is God. He's not expressing some self-awareness that he has. He's demonstrating a love that the Trinity has for itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so also God for loves us. And the Hebrew audience would have been very well familiar with 
what it means to know somebody. To know is to love. So why is this important? God knew you. God loved you before the foundation of the world with a purpose to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. And the reason is that we may obtain an inheritance that Christ himself has purchased on our behalf. Now we transition to uh, what William Perkins famously calls the golden chain of redemption. Whether you are privy to English or German, all these verbs are past tense, translated directly over from the Greek, meaning they are completed actions. What were you first? You were first predestined. You were chosen by God. There was nothing about you or your future decisions that you would make. Rather, God, out of his own love, chose a sinner to express his intimate, redemptive love and to save you. And then you were called, you yourself were called by the Spirit of God. It refers to the inward call where the Holy Spirit enlivens our hearts and our minds to accept the truths of the gospel. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that apart from the Spirit, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. You need the Spirit for conversion. So also in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You were called by God's Spirit, who conforms you to the image of Christ. Not only that, but you were justified, past tense. When we feel like we are still caught up in our sin, when we err and transgress God's law, we are reminded that we are still justified, even though we don't feel it yet, even though we still feel like we are miles away from God, you are still positionally justified in God. Shorter Catechism says that justification is an act of God's free grace. It's something that God himself does, wherein he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his own sight, but only for the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us. It's only because of what Jesus Christ has done that we are justified. We only bring the sin that's necessary for Christ to redeem us. And finally, you are glorified. Again, we feel the tension right now. Do you you feel glorified right now? I don't feel glorified. I still have aches and pains. I get sick. I struggle. Yet at the same time, because you are in Christ, because of what Christ has done positionally in Christ, you yourselves are glorified. At the same time, we won't realize that fully until we are with them in heaven. But because of it, we come to our third point, the glory of God's eternal love. 
All throughout Jesus' ministry, he gives us many parables, and I think one of my favorite is from John chapter 10, and the analogy of him being the good shepherd. Not only is he our good shepherd, but he also assures us that we are eternally secure in him. Verses 27 through 30, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Again, there's that word know. And they follow me. And Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Christ knows who his sheep are. He loves his sheep. He died for his sheep. And he assures us that regardless of the sufferings and the persecutions that we endure, no one in creation, in heaven above or below, will be able to snatch us out of his hand because Jesus is God. All throughout Paul's letter here, we've been given a bunch of little nuggets of truth with some practical application. Why, why are we predestined? Why are we called? Why are we justified? Why are we glorified? Why does any of this matter in the Christian life? It's because we indeed suffer. Yet in Christ, suffering becomes the stepping stones on the pathway to glory. Paul says previously in Romans 5, 3-5, he says, We, what, rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we come to this last bit of the text, and Paul asks us a bunch of rhetorical questions. They're not meant to be answered uh, truly, but we could easily answer them. And what are we to conclude from all of this? As children of God, we've been adopted into his family. We are co-heirs with Christ. We have received the Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. Our prayers are taken up by the Spirit to God. Though we are sinners by nature, by faith, we have a hope in what Christ has done for us. We see Jesus being seated at the right hand of God the Father, again, a position of royalty. This is what the psalmist writes in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make an enemy, or excuse me, enemies your footstool. Christ himself is reigning and ruling. And for these reasons, both the Old and New Testament bring to bear upon us the very truth. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And if you see there in verse 35, there's really an escalation of the various things that we think will separate us 
from Christ. Tribulation, fairly mild. Just a tiny bit of persecution. Distressed or actual persecution. Okay, now we're really feeling the weight of it. Famine. We have no food, nothing to sustain us. Nakedness. We have no provisions. We're empty. We're with nothing now. What about danger? The certainty of death or the sword? Death itself. Will any of this separate us from Christ? No. The answer is no. None of that will separate us. Because Paul says, for I am sure he has confidence that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present in the now that you are currently suffering, or things when you walk out this door and endure life that you will suffer, whether it's high, whether it's depth, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is absolutely sure and convicted of this, and we also ought to be sure because God's word promises us that it is true. Again, I'm reminded of the last stanza, and in Christ alone they say, no power of hell, no scheme of man, shall ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. With that, let us go to him in prayer. Lord, whom do we have but you in this life? Father, we come as your people. Some of us come into your presence this morning with joy and gladness. And as one body, we rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Lord, there's others who come into your sanctuary who are burdened by sin. We're burdened with suffering. We're burdened with pains immeasurable pains that we don't even know to be true or how strong they are in our own lives. May Father, as your body, we suffer and endure with them. But with that, Lord, we are reminded that because of what Christ has done on our behalf, that all forms of suffering and persecution None of that compares to the love of God upon us. Lord, remind us of that great truth that we will endure until the end. That our sins have been washed away by the precious blood of the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. Let us always, Lord, put our hope and put our trust in you, both now and forever. In Christ's name, amen.